you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. I Am Creative out of Columbus, Ohio was listed by Inc. Magazine in both 2015 and 2016 as one of the fastest growing privately held companies in the U.S. I Am Creative is owned and led by life and business partners Scott Eirig and Shannon Morrison. Scott and Shannon share how they built I Am Creative to be such a successful company and how they manage their lives together as business partners and as husbands. For anyone thinking of going entrepreneur, especially if you're going entrepreneur with your partner or spouse, you don't want to miss this episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Well, welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We want to welcome Scott and Shannon of I Am Creative. Hey, welcome, it's guys. great to be here. Absolutely. We're, we're happy to have you. Thank you so much for, for coming on our show. For our listeners who might not be aware, we were featured, David and I were featured in the Chase article last June for Pride. And there was another couple, Scott and Shannon, featured as well that same month. And we thought, well, we need to meet these awesome guys. And <laughs> we had a phone call a couple months ago and had a great time. And we thought, let's have them on Crew Money and tell our listeners how they've grown their amazing business. And, as and now a, we as get a couple, to say, Chase obviously Bank has, features us. No, no, no. She's Capital One. What's in Oh, darn it. There goes that endorsement deal. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> well, welcome, guys. Do you mind giving us an introduction of, of who you are and, and a little bit of your backstory, please? Sure. Let's go with Shannon uh, first. Well, we actually do this every day on the telephone, and Scott usually goes first, so it's totally going to screw up my life <laughs> if I go first. So I'm going to let Scott go first. Do whatever works for you guys. So I'm Scott Erig, and I founded what is now I Am Creative in 2000. Before that, I was a lawyer. I did that for about two years, and the first year was awesome. And then the second year, I wanted to jump out of my lost firm window. And so I left the practice of law, a job for life. Spoiler alert, he didn't. Right, I didn't, right? (laughs) So I left this job for life for a job for 10 weeks producing the Radio City Christmas Spectacular starring the Radio City Rocket. I left my office with an assistant and a door that I could close to a desk in a hallway of a a high school in the outskirts of Chicago rehearsing the Rockettes and loved it. Wow. And from there, I started producing events in the non-Christmas season and decided in 2000 that I wanted to start my own company and, and not be working for other people for the rest of my life. I started what is now I Am Creative. Back in that back is... in the day when I came on the scene, guys, it was known as Erig Productions. Erig is Scott's last name and gives <laughs> us the I in I Am Creative. My last name is Morrison. And as soon as Scott suggested after we had been dating for a little while that we might actually collaborate as work partners, I said to him, we've got to do something about this company name because Erig sounds like a disease and production <laughs> doesn't really mean anything to people. <laughs> or a vacuum cleaner. Uh, so th- that was part of how, number one, we got married and I ended up not taking his name and number two how i am creative came to be my background is as a theater person i have a bachelor's degree in playwriting and psychology from yale i lived in los angeles for a couple of years working with the la gay and lesbian center on the psychology side of my brain where i was working in high-risk public sex environments of all things there was a lot of queer money going around there too for the record But after that, I decided to come back to the East Coast for graduate school 
where I got a master's degree in musical theater writing from NYU. Connected with some Broadway producers who gave me a gig working on Legally Blonde and Thoroughly Modern Millie and other great shows, but was really looking for a way to take my creative mindset, that's really my milieu at the company, to bring it in the service of people who would appreciate creativity. As you well know, I love my near Broadway show, just like every other guy on the planet. However, that's commerce <laughs> as much as it's art. And I want to find a place that was less about adapting the latest movie and to find a place that was really looking to move people through the live experience. In fact, our, our company is built upon the foundation that being together really does matter. That's great and exciting story. So I just to paint the picture a little bit, I want to ask you for our listeners, how did you guys meet exactly? Do you want the story it was to tell a- my mother or do you want the truth? Let's go with the truth. Called, <laughs> it's called handsomegentlemenwhoaregay.com. Yeah, we'll go with that. We met in uh, we met nine years ago. It wasn't on match.com, but that's what I told my mother. But it wasn't on the um, <laughs> the current world of meeting slash hookup sites that are now available. It was pre that world. We met online. Gotcha. We were both living gotcha. in New York. And the first time we actually met was at a place called Gym Bar in Chelsea. And Shannon was coming from rugby practice. Uh, yeah. And I was coming from work. My office was just a couple blocks down the street. Hang on. And I want everyone out there in the listener verse understand that first dates always go better when you go straight from rugby practice (laughs) that's the tip on a super cute little costume he was playing sports ball or something (laughs) and as he's come to tell me in the in after the fact he also had teammates standing by in case it went horribly wrong that he could ditch me quickly luckily that didn't happen Uh, right the plan b strategy waiting in the wings (laughs) need somebody waiting in the wings (laughs) That's awesome. The reason I asked that is because I think it's very interesting that you then eventually, after eight years or so, decided to go into business together. How did you come to that conclusion exactly? Well, it was really Scott's conclusion to come to because I couldn't get another job. (laughs) It's not totally true. Shannon had been working for a Broadway producer and had just decided to, to leave there and go and pursue his own creative work. And I was running Eric Productions at the time. And it was myself and my gay uncle who lived in New York. We had a small loft on 14th Street between 6th and 7th. And Shannon started kind of hanging out and showing up at my office and wondering, what what is it that you do? And, and oh, people pay for that. You know, we produce corporate events, big meetings and experiences for companies. And finally, he said, I think I could do this. So let's try that out. So I was, I was working on a show for a pharmaceutical company at the time. And Shannon came along. It was a drug launch that was happening in Philadelphia. Shannon came along as a production assistant just to come and experience the world of corporate events. And when we finished that project, we both came to the conclusion that not only was it something that interests him and that there was a need for his skills within the company I was trying to keep going, but that we thought that there was a special kind of yin and yang skill set between he and I he with the creative ideation and me with the business acumen and the ability to execute on that creative idea. Which, if I may interject, guys, it's Shannon. This is sort of one of the first entrepreneurial lessons that I ever 
learned. And it was one that I actually helped teach Scott as well. When I came into what was then Eric Productions, it was the Scott show. And Scott was trying to do absolutely <laughs> everything. And Scott didn't always necessarily have the sets to get everything done that we need to as entrepreneurs. He's certainly a talented, talented manager, but he couldn't do it all. And when I came and really said, look, let me take some of this off your plate so that we can both concentrate on what we're really good at, things really started to click for us. So while I'll make jokes about the fact that we met on you know a, a crazy gay website, I think it's important that what works for our relationship also works for our business. And that's the complementary nature of our skill sets, communication styles. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. In mine and David's business, we complement each other as well. There are things that he can do that I have no patience for. <laughs> and there are things that I do that he can't do as well. What I'm curious about though, is it's one thing to be in a relationship with somebody. It's another thing to then go into business with them. Scott, didn't you have any apprehensions or concerns about going into business with Yes, your, Scott. I'd really partner? like to know. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> way to bring it up, right? I didn't for kind of two reasons. One is I grew up in a, a family where my parents owned multiple businesses together. They ran a daycare when I was a little kid. They ran a screen printing and advertising specialties company from when I was in high school till they retired. And so I had seen the model of spouses living and working together, and that seemed pretty normal to me. I also have this philosophy and kind of approach to life or, you know, when people talk about work-life balance, I think that that's a misnomer. I just think we have a life. And when you find people that you want to be in your life, that it doesn't necessarily make sense to segregate them out and say, you're a friend, you're a colleague, you're a lover, you're a, I'm going to put you in this box. It's these are people that I want to have in my life. And Shannon is the prime one of those. And so it works out for us to be best friends and husbands and business partners and colleagues all at the same time. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> that gets lots of hearts. Emoticon, emoticon, emoticon. So, Shannon, I want to ask you the same question, though. So, Scott approaches you about going into business with him, this business he's been working on for eight years. What apprehensions or concerns did you have? Well, I'm a much more impulsive and less measured person. I am motivated by passion. And bear in mind, I quit a job producing work on Broadway to go and write in a studio apartment in the ghetto itself in a Rochefield apartment. So I'm not particularly risk averse. And I kind of knew that I could, I could make it work either way. What I appreciated was that Scott was a great communicator in those early days when I had a much steeper learning curve to get up than he did. I had to study hard and I had to study quickly because the train was already moving and I was learning how to build it. And so that's a really yeah. strange place to be in. But because Scott was such a good communicator, I feel like I had the room to make mistakes where I needed to, and I didn't have the room to make mistakes where they would be a fatal flaw to the business. So there was a, an appropriate amount of Black on my leash, if you will. I know this isn't that kind of podcast, but <laughs> wow, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but in that respect, I, I was I was so, given the ability to to learn the lessons that every entrepreneur learned and to learn what was going to work in the partnership, and and we were actually learning that 
lesson together. Scott had, had started the business with his uncle, which in and of itself, interesting in that it was an intergenerational power dynamic, would sometimes be almost more problematic mm. to navigate than a peer relationship. But if he could make that work, he could certainly make working with me work. So Shannon, let me ask you just one additional question. How long had you and Scott been together when you started this? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I the title of my forthcoming autobiography will be have notes, the Shannon Morrison story, <laughs> ask him for his opinion and he'll give one. <laughs> so I was giving notes on everything Scott was doing wrong in this business that he had built from nothing and that was running successfully, you know, like you do. But I think that uh, we probably dove into that first pharmaceutical project six months in, which was in both our minds. Scott, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that was a little bit of a fork in the road that said, okay, this can either be just a work thing, or this can be just a romantic thing, or we can see if how long we can straddle both before we have to make that choice. And as it turns out, we've never had to make that choice. Funny, I thought it was a romantic thing so all along. I... I'm glad to know that. You didn't know you had a choice right, in the I didn't know that, that was like a decision point. I'm glad that we were on the same page in the end. <laughs> right. Well, it all, it's all worked out, right? The reason I ask that is it does sound like it was relatively early on in your relationship, but you obviously were adult enough to know enough about each other as to whether or not you could make this move. And it wasn't impulsive. No, we dipped our toes in the water or we, we shot BBs at it before we shot a bazooka at it to take a, a good to great idea. <laughs> you know, we tried it out a little right. bit. We, he came on this, this project that I was doing and, and we worked well together and we could travel okay together and he wasn't embarrassing in front of a client and people liked him, you know, like, and then we had another project, this pharma project where we worked together on. And then we had a project with Reader's Digest where it was, okay, small project, but we owned the whole thing. So again, another kind of chance to, to try the waters with relatively safe consequences on the back end. And each time things went well, both personally and professionally. Yeah. So and we just uh, kept going down. Another way, another way of saying what Scott just said is that our work is highly episodic. We're not working on projects for years at a time. We're working on them for weeks to months at a time. And so we had the luxury of being able to iterate often to figure out how to get this partnership right. That makes sense. And part of the reason why I asked that question is John and I are definitely trying to encourage more in our community to think about taking the risk of becoming an entrepreneur, becoming leaders and doing things beyond what may be, quote unquote, the safe things to do in the gay space, the gay business space or the gay entertainment space or whatever that space is that you find yourself, we encourage people to take those risks. And it's nice to hear, like you said, you tested the waters, you measured it out, you thought about it, and you knew that there was some commitment, but it sounds like there were some some opportunities for you to reflect and say, this is well, good. I think Let's that one forward. of the reasons that Scott and I had such a great connection from the outset was that our gay experience had taught us very, very similar lessons, which is to say the world is going to tell you what you should be, and how you should behave and what you should value. And we sort of 
heck with all of that. And I think that common thread through a lot of our generation's gay experiences. And when you learn that as a person, it's really tough to unlearn it and ascribe certain norms or even heteronormative models of behavior to your business life. Yeah, that makes sense. So we didn't. Yeah. That's exactly the same with John and I. You know, we, for such a long time after the marriage equality ruling, John and I were hoping and looking for more representation of our community in the financial services space. And we weren't seeing it. And we said, well, okay, then we're going to just have to do it ourselves. <laughs> We've been pushing and hoping that more companies will do that. And we're starting to see that happen. So I want to ask, it might not have happened simultaneously, but you guys seem like you, you love the fabulous fun life and you have a very good time. Were there any points in your evolution of building your business that you had to dial it back financially or sacrifice a little bit to make the business work for the sake of the business? Every day until yeah. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally every day. We have 20 employees now, including ourselves. And so the financial reality of that is that there's a huge payroll going out every other Friday. It's high stakes. And we, need, and we need to make sure we meet that, right? When it was Shannon right. and I working out of a loft or, you know, an office in, in Manhattan, and then we moved to a loft in Brooklyn, we could make choices that just affected us. And in the early years, I made a lot less money as the owner of a company than I did freelancing, doing the same kind of work for other companies. So that in and of itself was a sacrifice. But it was also just affecting myself at first and then Shannon and I as a family. Now that there are 19 families that make their living directly off of, or part of their living at least, directly off of the company that we own and run, I think it's not a stretch to say hundreds of other families through freelancers and companies that we work with and, and money that we spend. We're pretty, although our accountant and bookkeeper wouldn't agree, but we're pretty... Um, <laughs> conscious of the money that we're spending, right? Yes, we have cute clothes and nice shoes and we travel a lot and we don't stay at places that have inn or suites in the name um, because we <laughs> we like to... Unless one of them is sponsoring the today's podcast, which is <laughs> we love <laughs> Currently sponsored by Red Roof Inn? No, exactly. Uh, I, I want to add to that though, that if you look at our Facebook pages or whatever, you'll see that we're traveling all the time and getting to do some really cool stuff with our careers and with our lives. We've also both been super ultra dirt poor. And when you can look in the mirror when you're super ultra dirt poor and say that you still like yourself, and when you can look at your spouse or your partner when you're both dirt poor and say, I still love you, the rest is just what's your intestinal fortitude for risk, right? Because right. we knew that even if old, where would we end up with each other? So what's the big deal? So you keep mentioning risk and reward. Was it always the reward that you were seeking in compensation for the risk? Did you know the reward was going to come? There's a reward coming. <laughs> well, well, I, hear you have, money today. I have you, here you have cute shoes and take nice vacations. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Honestly, for me, the reward, yes, like there's a financial reward and we are we are doing well, right? We are by no means ready to retire and be debt free, but we are doing well. But for me, way the to drop the brand, honey. Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, the reward isn't just what happens in the bank account, and in fact, that's almost a tertiary experience. It's what kind of life can I live, and what am I able to do for the things that I care about, 
And what is that day-to-day experience? And sometimes it's not awesome, right? There's parts of running a company that are hard and you make tough choices and you disappoint people and you aren't living up to everything that you wish that you could. But in the, the aggregate of it all, being an entrepreneur and being a, a successful one gives us opportunities to live a life that's interesting. And some of that comes with money and some of that just comes with the freedom. I recently lost one of my parents and I had the freedom to be able to walk away from my company and be away and literally not check email for a month because we have such a good team that's covering our work. And I don't think I would be able to do that if I was a salaried employee at some other company, right? They'd be like, that's a super nice idea. Why aren't you at your office? And so it's that kind of non-balance sheet bottom lines that are rewarding in being the owners of a company. Look, you've gotten a sense that I love to be able to tell a good or funny or interesting story. That's the reward to me. We get to do some really interesting things with some really interesting brands, with really great people who are super ultra talented. That's just great stories left and right. So, you know, Scott was telling the story earlier about how he was introducing me to this world. And I think I actually said to him at one point, people pay you for this because it seems like one of those jobs that you should earn, but that they shouldn't pay you for. You should just get to do it. But people actually do pay for it, which makes it even more rewarding. Absolutely. One of the things I think that both of you are kind of bringing up and what you're talking about, John and I have this saying that we use with Queer Money, to live fabulously, not fabulously broke. And that some of that living fabulously is what happens on the inside when you're doing what you really love, when you're satisfying that inside portion of yourself that says, this makes my day-to-day life worth living. It's not about showing to everyone that you have all of these fabulous things. It's telling yourself, I am a fabulous person. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and while we're on the subject of how we live fabulously, I just want to paint a picture for you, John. We talked about the fabulous vacations that Scott and I get to go on. I think we went on one probably a decade ago, but it happened to be in Hawaii when these fabulous gay world travelers that you hear found themselves on the big island of Hawaii with no rental car to take them in to actually see the volcano that was the entire purpose of the trip. (laughs) So during a sad and somber rainy walk that was approximately six miles away from that volcano, we walked past a gas station. And at that gas station was a sign. What did that sign say, Scott? (laughs) U-Haul. So these fabulous gays rented themselves a 30-foot U-Haul for $19.95 for the afternoon and went and saw the damn volcano. Those photographs themselves are priceless. Right. Exactly. That shows fortitude. I like it. It's the experiences that are fabulous. Right. And the stories. They'll never forget that. Exactly. Right. Otherwise, it would have just been, oh, yeah, we saw the volcano. Right. Okay. What's that? true. Exactly. So I Am Creative has been listed by Inc. Magazine for 2015 and 2016 as one of the fastest growing privately held companies. As a gay-owned business in a straight-owned world, it seems, how does that feel? I've never thought of it that way, honestly, right? I think we're kind of just doing our thing. I don't mean that to sound falsely modest or whatever. It feels nice. The thing that it brings to mind for me is that it allows us to do things 
for the community that we care about that I don't think we'd otherwise be able to do. We have a strong staff. We're able to donate our time and expertise and creativity to causes that we care about. We've opened our office to some local kind of grassroots activist groups who who are trying to make the lives better, especially for trans people and people of color. To be able to do that without having to worry about the financial ramifications of it. Yeah, sure. Come use our resources, use our space, gather and, and work. It's fantastic. That's what it makes me think of. Shaw? I guess, you know, when it comes to like being a queer business and look, I'm super damn queer all day, every day, right? <laughs> I don't think of our business in and of itself as a queer business, but when I think about queer money and what I think is important for younger gay people or queer entrepreneurs to understand is that our money isn't covered in glitter or pink when it comes out of our wallet. It looks just like everyone else's. But what's queer about our money is the responsibility that we hold to where we put that money at any given moment. And we look at that responsibility, at least Scott and I do, in a way that is different from most, if not all, of our heterosexual friends and counterparts and colleagues because of our queer identity, because we understand that our identity can very easily be taken advantage of or taken for granted or erased from history if we don't put our money in places that are responsible. And so that's what it makes me think about, that I wish that there were more people with queer money engaging their queer sensibilities and putting that money in responsible places. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just So one of the things that John and I say, and we have basically three primary reasons why we do what we do, and probably one of the strongest is that we believe in a strong queer community. One of the pillars of a strong queer community is financially strong individuals, because those individuals can then help lift the bar or hold up the fort when it comes to things like what you just mentioned, supporting individuals who are from even more disadvantaged communities than we are. Like you mentioned, trans women of color. The average trans woman of color earns $10,000 a year. It gives us that opportunity and, in a sense, responsibility to use our money for good. I think one of the other reasons why we brought this question up is it's nice to hear what you're saying, that it doesn't matter that we're a gay company. And that's one of the messages that we want our listeners to think about when you're hearing this. Here is another couple, gay couple who said, we are going to create a thriving, amazing business. And the fact that we're gay Leave that on the side. We are going to create an amazing business. Don't hold yourself back from doing what you want to do because of your sexual identity or gender identity or sexual orientation. Leave that on the sidelines and do what it is that's driving you. You know, something else that's come up for us so recently that I'm turning left, Scott. I feel like I got to warn you, buddy. Uh, (laughs) Happens all the time. (laughs) So as Scott mentioned, we recently lost a parent. And it provokes gay people at our age who, in particular, don't have children. Who's going to to be clear? (laughs) (laughs) Who's going? Who's going to do this for us when we're in that place? Because we don't have that same traditional familial system where the next generation 
takes care of us. And so the idea of planning for retirement is all the more important and prevalent to our community. It's sure we have one another, but who the heck knows what the cultural landscape is going to be like and how we can connect with one another. You know, we're deporting educated young Latino people from the country right now. Crazy stuff is happening. So for us to think, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, what is our financial security going to be made up of? It's certainly not made up of children who are doctors and lawyers. Absolutely. John and I have had several podcasts that bring up that topic of childless gay couples or gay individuals and the need to have so much more money in retirement or the right kinds of insurance to prepare you for those final years so you're you are taken care of in the manner in which you've lived the rest of your life out with and in that respect yeah. our money isn't any different than anyone else's money but what we're going to need to do with it is dramatically different absolutely that's why we need queer financial advisors to your point yes Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. We noticed in 2015, after same-sex marriage became legal, that pretty much all financial services firms stopped talking about the financial nuances of the LGBT community. And same-sex marriage, marriage equality didn't make everything equal. There, there's still a lot of challenges that our community faces. Right. So I kind of want to change a little bit. Shannon, in the Chase interview, you had a quote that just I, I loved. It's not true. <laughs> I was misquoted. No. No. What, what quote are you talking about? You tweeted out. <laughs> um, you said, as we get more engrossed in our digital lives, our analog lives sometimes get short shrift. I think it's yeah. fascinating how, because I love the whole gig economy and how the work world and our relationships and everything keeps changing. Can you share more about that quote, please? I guess it's just that like when I was a kid, even a teenager in sort of the pre-smartphone world, when I was standing in line at the bank or at the grocery store, was that chatty Kathy girl. Like, <laughs> that's just me. Hey, how you doing? I love your nails. Where'd you get those shoes? You know, whatever it might be, I think was a little bit of emotional intelligence gymnastics because I was just constantly looking for some kind of stimulation in that respect. But I think there are entire swaths of now who don't engage in any of that face-to-face -face interaction because now when we stand in line at the bank, we're checking our email, we're looking at the scores, we're reading the news. Or we don't even go to the bank, right? We don't go, or we don't go to the bank. Right. We don't go to the, the store. We we just order it all from now Amazon and it's just delivered the next day. Right. So the easier things have become for us, we've gotten lazier about the analog things that I think condition our brains on a on an individual neuron level fire in different interesting ways and to encompass experiences beyond our own that help us think in a way that is smarter. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Let me ask you then, how do you challenge yourself to break free from that from time to time? <laughs> Put them on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> it's so rude. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> but it's hard. Go ahead, Scott. We make our living on the saying being together matters, right? That being present in the physical space with each other, engaging in that moment is a magical transformative experience. And yet to do that takes us traveling all the time all across the U.S. and some in Europe and 
the reality of executing on that is that a lot of our life is led digitally, right? Right mm -hmm. now, Shannon and I are in different cities. We won't see each other for a couple more days. We'll see each other for a few days, and then we'll be in different cities again. The ability to manage your life digitally and have and execute things that way is what allows us to create those special moments for other people. We're not awesome at doing that for ourselves. That's Although I will say that, you know, when Scott and I get in the room and we pitch with people, sure, we use graphics, but we don't rely heavily on a PowerPoint deck. We're not heavily scripted. It's really just a conversation, much like we're having here today. And I hearken back to my early lessons in how to be a playwright, where you put two characters in a room who you know, and then you ask them to talk about something that they don't know with each other. And as a playwright, you start to feel a little schizophrenic because you don't know the conversation's going to go. It's that sort of emotional intelligence and that level of entropy that we're able to bring in to all of our pitch meetings and all of our capabilities presentations and all of our initial chats with potential clients because we're not relying upon any skills other than our brain and our mouths and our eyes. And it's constantly improvisational. Yeah. And when you're improvisational is when people have to pay attention. And that's why I think that that analog life of being forced to be improvisational in one another's presence without being able to compose the perfect tweet response or to compose the perfect facial expression response to someone, it creates an environment of increased authenticity that I think is important and valuable. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a challenge to anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur or is an entrepreneur right now in this digital world to remember you need to still embrace the analog space. And David and I, we're not great at this, but we do try to turn off technology about 8, 30, 9 o'clock every night and unwind and talk and we actually read paper All right, books. what do you guys want? A medal? You guys are better than we are, okay? <laughs> no, we just want to know that we're not alone. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. Singing the we're Michael multi-screeners. Yeah, like but Jackson one of those song. screens is always a text message to one another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is true. So we read in Silicon Review that your values for your I Am Creative are maniacal client focus, refreshing creativity, infectious excellence, relentless collaboration, and fearless authenticity. That is a lot. How do you execute on that every single day? We talk about them every single day. We came up with those. They were much blander to begin with, right? It was client focus and excellence and authenticity. And we've developed them over time, but we, we started them with when we started to grow and we needed to find a way to articulate to initially our staff and then prospects to that team and now prospects to clients, like what's important to us. And we intentionally don't have those on a wall because I don't ever want those to be like, oh yeah, those are the values that are on the wall and that's all they are. Right. We use them when we're challenging ourselves to figure out what should we do next and how do we hire and what's important to us in clients and in freelancers and in staff. We have to address each one of them anytime we do a recap of work that we've done or when we're thinking about hiring someone or in semi-annual employee reviews, biannual employee reviews. We're perpetually using those values to guide our actions. And in fact, we just brought on a large amount of new staff recently and we brought them all together for a day from all across the country. We spent a lot of time talking about our values. And one of the things that both Shannon and I talk about is, I'd rather see you run full force at the wall and leave a like 
U-shaped hole in the wall because you ran through it. If you're making those choices based upon your values that we're talking about, those five values that you just articulated, then I'm not going to be mad at you, right? You might have made a choice that isn't the choice I would have made, but that's always the guidepost to look back to and say, what's the right thing to do here? Oh, this is maniacally client-focused. It might cost us a little bit more money, but it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. This is what I need to do to be fearlessly authentic. So I'm going to tell you, colleague, staff member, that this is what I need from you, or this is how you let me down, or this is how you surprised me in a good way. And if we can tie things back to those values, it creates a common culture of what's important to us at the company and and how we should operate. I would also add to that, though, you know, despite the fact that I bear a striking resemblance to a shirtless Chris Evans, <laughs> I am not... I am not Captain America, nor is anyone else at our office, which is to say that following the values that we've set forth does not always come easily. In fact, it is rarely easy. It is often work. And the only way to get better at that is to practice it, which is why Scott and I converse about these values and how they are implemented in life, not just how are they abstract concepts that are interesting intellectual musings, but how do they apply to real world situations every day? And we fail a lot, but the act of trying to reach and embody those values is what keeps our culture vibrant and forward moving. And I would like to think happy. You know, when I think about it as the CEO of the company and I put my finance hat on, I know that they cost us money. And I remember a long time ago reading somewhere that, you know, your your values or what you hold dear are easy to execute on until that there starts to be a price. And there's not like a line item in our annual operating budget that says maniacal client focus, you know, $30,000. But I know that we spend money to do that in uh, big and little ways. Actually, and, don't tell Barbara, okay. but... Don't tell Barbara, but there is a line item for Maniacal Client Focus. (laughs) That's where I hide the shoe money. Okay. I will say, though, that in the long run, those values, and John and I have experienced this ourselves, those values are what what win you the clients in the future. The ones that get you that people start talking about you. And that's what wins you the opportunity to speak to new individuals, or it gives you that comfort that you did the best job you could, even though you made a little bit less money than you really wanted to. It's longhand longhand for trying to create a culture where we try to do the right thing. Exactly. I love that. And I think what you've done personally with those values kind of underscores David and I are big fans of Lisa Nichols, and she's a transformational speaker, she calls herself. She often says... What does she turn into? (laughs) (laughs) It's what she turns you into. (laughs) (laughs) But she always says, find those people who are two to 10 steps ahead of you in their career to help you raise your bar, to challenge you, and to give you some motivation and insight in how you can be better. But it sounds like, even though you may be doing that as well, but it's your values are always challenge you likewise. Yeah, there are guideposts, right? And I love that notion of finding people who are ahead of you or more successful. And I don't mean that in like a bigger boat and trying to kind of raise up to their level. It's something, honestly, we're just now starting 
to be able to consciously do as leaders of the company. We've gotten to a scale where it's not about day-to-day delivery for the client and day-to-day crisis management. It's about strategy and thought and how do we build this bigger and better and what are the right things to do and how do I get inspired and raise my game so that we can all raise our game. Absolutely. Love that. So that leads me to my my last question here. Do you have any daily or regular habits for improving yourselves professionally and personally and to stay engaged and grounded? Well, there are... I got to work with the fabulous and fierce Twyla Tharp on moving out a number of years ago. And Twyla Tharp is a huge believer that the most successful artists, if not entrepreneurs, engage in a ridiculous amount of discipline, in particular discipline to be at the piano or at the board or with a pen in hand. I take personal position as an artist that when there is a rule that includes those of daily rituals, which makes me tough because I simply look for rules to break all the time. (laughs) But that in and of itself is a rule. Try to break one rule every day and see what happens. I guarantee you it will be something that is either so underwhelming that you think, why is that a rule? That's stupid. I can drive on the left side of the street just fine as long as there's no one else. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, Or you'll find a completely new thing that was simply behind a barrier someone else put in front of you. And as we know as gay people, sometimes when other people put barriers in front of you, it's way more about them and not at all about you. Yes. And so it's important that you not be beholden to that barrier. Absolutely. I would say I've tried to create space in my day and therefore in my week and month and year and life for reflection and for unscheduled, unappointmented time for me to think and contemplate things, right? I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, the home of the fabulously wealthy Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. And he's talked a lot about spending most of his day reading and thinking. And it's done well by him. So I've literally put an hour and a half on my calendar every day that just says CEO time. And there's nothing scheduled for it. And it's not time for me to like go and check up on emails and take care of stuff. It's literally just time that I can either read a book or sit and think about what's going on in the company or or go for a walk. And I don't always get the hour and a half, but everyone knows the rule is you can't invade that time. I can choose to invade it, but other people can't. Well, sometimes and, I invade it, but I'm about breaking a rule every day. Right. So, right. That's the cycle continues. I'm back breaking the rule again. Exactly. <laughs> it's the fifth time this week. <laughs> it's also well, my husband, so he gets leeway. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you guys, I, I think you both are very inspiring, and, and what you're building with I Am Creative is super inspiring to David and me, and as well as to our community. So, we want to thank you for, I know you guys are very busy and you've got a lot going on in your lives, and we want to thank you for coming coming on Queer Money and sharing your wisdom with us and our listeners. Yes, thank you very much. Well, it's it's super, very much a privilege to be on. And we like and appreciate the work that you're doing. And we can help anybody else out. We would love to. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you, Scott and Shannon, for sharing your story with the Queer Money community. You set the example of the contribution LGBTQ people and couples can make to advance our rights and role in society. 
Thank you also to our listeners for listening to this episode of Queer Money. If you like this or any other episode of Queer Money, please comment on, like, and share Queer Money in iTunes so that we can get Queer Money in front of more LGBTQ people. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.